Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Today, we're joined by Sebastian Brunemeyer, a biotech VC and company builder focused on longevity and regenerative medicine. The list of his credentials in longevity biotech are long and quite impressive. He was co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambrian Biopharma, co-founder and COO of the autophagy company Samsara Therapeutics, and a principal at Apollo Health Ventures. He has academic training in the biology of aging, and he serves on the board of several longevity startups. Today, he's here primarily in two capacities. As co-founder and general partner of HealthSpan Capital, a longevity VC firm that invests in biotechnology startups developing therapies to slow or reverse aging, and as CEO and co-founder of ImmuneAge Pharma, a new company based on a drug discovery platform for immune rejuvenation. Sebastian, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Chris. I think the conversation today should fall into two parts. I'd love to start by talking about HealthSpan Capital and move on to talk about your newest venture, Immunage Pharma, later in the conversation. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about HealthSpan Capital? Sure. So HealthSpan is a new fund. We invest in long bio, longevity biotech, and regenerative medicine. We are a little different from some of the other investors in this space, including Apollo Health Ventures, which I helped launch several years ago in that Apollo is doing mostly company formation, whereas we write checks to existing companies. We don't do company formation ourselves. And similarly, Cambrian Biopharma is doing company formation as well. So we noticed that there was a gap in the market for a more traditional structured VC, the longevity biotech space. And actually, I and my co-founders launched HealthSpan because we were looking to invest our own money into a broadly diversified portfolio in the long bio space, and there was no way to do it. So we had to create it ourselves. And now we have a pretty impressive team, I think, from people with academic credentials from top academic institutions and big pharmas and so on. And we're just getting started. So we're hopeful that we can bring a lot of capital into the space. It's clear from your resume and your past exploits that you understand the importance of aging as a focus for biotech. So like me and my CEO and a lot of this podcast listeners, you're what I think of as a true believer. At some point, you must have said to yourself something like, what's the best thing I could do right now to advance the cause of longevity medicine? Why was the answer, I'm going to start a fund? Definitely a true believer, died in the wool, longevity advocate, and indeed a biological immortalist. There's nothing else that I want to do with my life and career. I'm spoiled for any other topic. And so I noticed some years ago when I got into space, longevity was very fringe. There were few investors. There were few people with drug discovery expertise, commercial expertise, and no funds specialized in the space. And still, there's this dearth of capital available. So there are a couple of big companies that have raised large amounts of capital like Altos or Calico or BioAge or Cambrian. But it's really not well distributed throughout the field. And so we see a huge opportunity, a huge gap in the market for those companies that are just getting started and need more traditional venture financing. Having decided to start a fund, what other qualities did it need to have? You mentioned that you wanted to kind of cast a broad net and you perceive that there was a gap in the market where other existing funds weren't already doing that. What were the other criteria that you applied as you kind of embarked on this project? Well, we have a pretty narrow mandate. We invest in pretty much only therapeutics, because our view is 
it doesn't matter how good your methylation clock or diagnostics are or what have you, until we have drugs that have been shown to extend healthy lifespan across species and can work for multiple age-related indications in the clinic, like label expansion, everything else doesn't matter. And there are not that many groups who are really focused on geroprotective therapeutics. So that's where we saw the greatest opportunity. Are there any other ways in which HealthSpan is differentiated from other kinds of funds? We do have sort of an advantage, largely to the credit of my colleague, Nathan Chang. I kind of call him the Rupert Murdoch of the longevity space. He's pulling all the (laughs) strings on the media side (laughs) behind the curtain. Uh, He's actually a very nice guy, Rupert Murdoch, not so sure. Oh, we've had him on the show. We love Nathan here, and I'm totally, I'm very, very impressed by him. And his media savvy is off the charts. Exactly. So when I had an opportunity to work with him, I had to say yes. And so for those who haven't heard his podcast, he runs longevitylist.com which is a database of most of the longevity biotech companies in the space, the investors, clinical trials, job postings, et cetera. And he also has a newsletter called Longevity Market Cap Newsletter, which is, I believe, the largest newsletter in the space. So because of that, we have pretty good deal flow. And I myself have been investing in the space for a long time. So uh, we know a lot of the people in the space. So that could be one advantage. But you know, there are a handful of other funds that are investing in longevity, but they're not dedicated to longevity for the most part. So that's one distinguishing factor. I guess the other thing to keep in mind is if longevity biotech and adjacent fields are resource limited, it may not be important or essential for every fund to be super differentiated from the other. The idea is that there's a space that it needs to be filled and like that fund over there is doing work and this fund over here is doing work. So, I mean... Maybe it's okay if there's some overlap in terms of remit. But it did sound like, just judging from your pitch materials that I, I looked over, that you're trying to have a pretty wide portfolio in the sense of having more companies in your portfolio than sort of the average VC. Is that still the case? Yeah, yeah. So we're believers that the only free lunch in finance is diversification. <laughs> and so, you know, one of the advantages of, of venture and private markets is that insider trading is legal in the sense that if you're an investor in a company, you know what's going on in that company better than the rest of the market. You have this sort of embedded call option to double down on the companies in your portfolio. And so by writing a lot of small checks early, we get an insight into who's doing what, and then we can come in with larger checks when the time is right. So we're planning to invest in more than the 20, average 20 or so companies per biotech fund. We'd like to go above that and invest at least small checks in as many of the high quality long bio companies in the entire ecosystem and sort of represent a more of a diversified, almost ETF-like index fund-like approach. And then as these companies progress, we can double down on the winners. I see. But you are focusing on earlier stage companies, at least initially, right? Yeah, correct. We try to be value-adding investors on the board or providing advice to founders. And so we prefer to be an earlier but we will still invest in later stage deals opportunistically. So I had a chat with Kristen Fortney the other day. It expressed my interest to invest in BioAge's next round. So of course, we make exceptions for excellent companies. Once resources are in place, what approach do you take to investing them? Like perhaps we could start with what kind of companies you were looking for beyond just saying at their early stage and what kind of investments you're making. We are looking for bona fide geroprotective molecules. And so drugs that are within, say, three years from the clinic. We tend to invest on an asset-oriented basis rather than platform companies. And so 
We really like simple modalities, small molecules, peptides, antibodies, et cetera, that's proven. We are still interested in more exotic modalities, gene and cell therapies, et cetera, but uh, those are, are pretty complex, and so we tend not to prefer those. And then we look for teams that are composed of people who are really dedicated to remaining long bio companies. So there's always this temptation to pivot away from longevity and aging towards something that your investors see as low-hanging fruit in the clinical field. So we really like to invest with fellow true believers, longevists, who are going to remain committed to label expansion. So the basic premise is, you guys know at BioAge, you get a drug approved for one indication, whether it's age-related or not. And then once it's on the market, it's much easier to do label expansion. So investigator-sponsored studies, for example, to find out what that geroprotective drug also works for, what other diseases it also works for. So many people in the field say, oh, well, you'll never have a drug for aging because you would have to do a clinical trial for lifespan as your endpoint, and that would take forever, so therefore it's impossible. Well, you know, we can do label expansion, start with one disease or age-related disease, expand to the others. And then eventually we may be able to do some sort of surrogate biomarker-based endpoint, some composite endpoint of the methylation clock and blood aging biomarkers and frailty and you name it. So I'm a little more optimistic about that in the near term. But the reason to do longevity drug discovery is because the drugs that slow the pace of aging and enhance robustness across species are much more likely to work in humans because wild-type aging in mice, for example, is fairly conserved to human aging. And if it extends lifespan in yeast, worms, flies, and mice, it's much more likely to work in humans because these species are evolutionarily very distant. So contrast this with how drug discovery is done today. By and large, you have these contrived animal models that don't really work, like the Mouseheimer's amyloid beta model, on which billions have been wasted. And I direct the listeners to check out the work of Jack Scannell, who is an advisor to Elspan Capital, he coined the term E-Rooms Law, which is the inverse of Moore's Law. So Gordon Moore at Intel found that every 16 months, semiconductor processing power doubled. Well, it's the inverse of that in pharma, where it's getting exponentially more expensive for big pharma's internal R&D pipelines to get a new drug approved. That doesn't apply to biotech drug discovery, by the way. And so we have to ask, what are the reasons for that? And Jack is coming out with a new paper in Nature Reviews Drug Discovery in the next couple of weeks. I just had him on my forthcoming podcast about this. And he basically argues that the low-hanging fruit has been picked with respect to the good quality predictive animal models of disease. So if you have, for example, an infection model, you have a mouse, you infect it with some microbe and you treat it with antibiotics, that is pretty realistically recapitulating the human disease. Mm -hmm. But if you inject a mouse with bleomycin and say, you know, this is fibrosis, or you overexpress four times the normal amount of amyloid beta, that does not recapitulate the human disease. And so what happens is there's a process of attrition where the good animal models are no longer used because we pretty quickly get effective drugs out of those models. And then what's left behind are these unrealistic contrived models that everyone keeps banging their head against. And the incentives are perverse in pharma and in academia. They're happy to just publish the paper using the quote unquote standard model and you know in academia to get papers. And then in pharma, their incentive is just to advance the molecule to the next phase of development so they collect their bonus. 
So there's a really perverse set of incentives there. And so I would argue that if you have a drug that enhances robustness and resilience and extends lifespan, and it works in multiple different animal models of disease contrived or not, that is a much stronger preclinical signal for efficacy down the road. I think that's such a powerful concept that the the best job security for an animal model is to not work very well. <laughs> exactly. Because it guarantees that people are going to keep using it. At BioAge, we couldn't agree with you more that many of the models for age-related disease are problematic. And you named our favorite one to pick on, which is the Alzheimer's mice. Rodent neural aging is just not the same as human aging. And when you try to make it like human aging by what is there? Are there three different transgenes in those in those mice? you end up with something that's just not realistic and it's not a reflection of the pathogenesis in humans. And as we have seen billions of dollars later, you just don't get good human relevant outcomes from these models. Yeah, And that's why we focus on when we do use our rodent models and we use exclusively naturally aged animals as opposed to prematurely aged via mutation or some other intervention, we look primarily at the kinds of things that are the same between rodent and human aging, like Muscle aging, which is very similar. Immune aging, which is, as you know, quite similar, but with important differences. So yeah, I, I think that you're, you're definitely preaching to the choir. Before we leave the topic of the amyloid hypothesis, though, I'd love to give a shout out to an article that everybody interested in brain aging should read because it's indicative of how dogma and scientific corruption really distorts this scientific enterprise. So there was this article a couple of years ago in Stat News, S-T-A-T, about the, quote, Alzheimer's cabal or the Alzheimer's amyloid mafia. They're sometimes called PIs like Dennis Selko at Harvard and many others who swept under the rug all of the negative data undermining the amyloid hypothesis. And whether they did that consciously or subconsciously is still to be determined. But it's the kind of thing where, you know, we spent two or three decades banging our heads against the wall on this one protein target, amyloid beta. Pharma has wasted billions and billions on it. And there was this case recently of Biogen's Aduhelm monoclonal antibody that did not work, even in the estimation of the FDA's ADCOM. Most of the members of the ADCOM did not want to either rule against it or recuse themselves. And their own FDA statistician said that this should not be approved. And the FDA went ahead and approved it anyway. And now they're under investigation from the Department of Justice, an internal FDA investigation as to the degree of coziness between Biogen and FDA. Unfortunately, the insurers, as well as EMA in Europe, uh, opted not to pay for it because it was pretty clear that the drug didn't work. In, they ran two large phase threes. In one phase three, it didn't work at all. In one of them, it, it kind of worked for the highest dose patients, but it only conferred less than six months delayed progression. And in about 20% of patients, they got brain swelling. They got a severe adverse effect. And, and this was all swept under the rug. Oh, and they wanted to charge 50 grand a year for it. So if you calculate the number of Alzheimer's patients we have times 50 grand a year, it would basically bankrupt Medicare. So anyway, all told, that is sort of a nightmare situation that indicates that FDA uh, is, you know, not entirely objective in their <laughs> determinations. It also shows that pursuing the wrong models has a real and very severe cost, both in terms of lost opportunity and in terms of literal cost to insurers, to state providers of healthcare, and ultimately to patients. Absolutely. And opportunity cost is one of the greatest among them because we're all marching toward the grave. And it's hard to account for all of the dark matter, all of the 
the mass of the iceberg underneath the water for all of the attempts that we're not trying. I mean, there are only maybe 100 clinical trials in, in the dementia MCI space occurring right now. And it's still probably the greatest unmet need of all clinical indications. So it's crazy because big pharma has largely left the CNS or at least the dementia space because of that degree of failure. So yeah, we're really losing a lot of time, but I'm hopeful that companies like BioAge and Cambrian and, and others that we're funding will actually take fresh approaches to brain aging. I hope so too. And I feel like those efforts are ongoing and I'm, I'm really excited to see uh, what kind of fruit that they bear. Before we move away from the discussion about healthspan capital and move toward talking about your newest venture, Immunage, I, I want to ask a bit of a philosophical question about investment in the longevity space. So remember earlier when I referred to us both as true believers, mm. it sounds like we're both comfortable with that. Well, so you described the way in which you pick companies and that you wanted to pick companies that are where the principles are not going to pivot away from aging because they care very much about that core mission. Let's think about the other person in the room who's a prospective investor. And that person may not or almost never is a true believer in longevity medicine and regenerative medicine. And what they truly believe in, their holy scripture, is the simple arithmetic of timely return on investment. They understand all of the words and the arguments about why targeting aging is important and feasible. And they, they see that there's a value proposition there, but they aren't convinced it's the optimal investment right now. Perhaps they're sold on the idea that the market risk is minimal, but the technical risk is high. Perhaps they think the risk is tolerable, but the time frame is too long. I'm sure you've been in rooms with these people. And I'm just wondering, like, how do you bring them around? How do you argue your case? The good thing is they're not mutually exclusive goals. So we take a pretty traditional clinical development strategy as everyone else. So if we can get the drug into a rare disease first for the regulatory advantages and small trials and the speed, and then once it's approved for some human use, then it becomes much easier to label expand to other indications. So the argument that I make to co-investors who are not dyed-in-the-wool longevity advocates is we take a traditional approach at first, but there's this embedded bonus where this drug can work. It's a pipeline in a pill. Geroprotective drugs are a pipeline in a pill. They can work for many different diseases, and that's not lost on pharma. You know, I, I'm in discussions with Pfizer right now, and they're keen to prioritize aging as one of the therapeutic areas of interest because they recognize the label expansion potential. Pharma is not new to the principle of label expansion. They do it in oncology all the time. So we're just taking it a step further where we say, okay, we've got a drug that maybe works for rare genetic disease, works in oncology, but then it, it works for diabetes or for cardiovascular disease, leading cause of death or dementia or whatever. And so the difficult part is raising capital for those trials in parallel or in quick succession before the patent uh, life runs out. <laughs> That's a, a longer term problem. But again, pharma is very astute in life cycle management to extend that that timeline. Makes sense to me. And clearly the, the success of raising by organizations like yours and other funds means that this argument is not falling on deaf ears and that investors are being brought around to the both short-term feasibility and the long-term value proposition of longevity biotech. Yeah. And, and further, you know, a lot of investors are interested in the general meme or the zeitgeist in a field. And so they see, and a lot of people see that there's this, we're in this exponential curve in interest in the long bio field. And so I think over the next decade, we're going to see a rational exuberance in the public and private markets around longevity biotech companies. 
And that is a wave that many smart investors can ride to lower the cost of capital for their portfolio companies, raise a lot of money to diversify into multiple directions. So even if there's a slightly longer timeline for doing multiple clinical trials, they see that there's it's that risk is hugely outweighed by the fact that longevity is hot. And I think there will be a bubblicious period over the next decade. Well, here, here. Let's move now to talking about Immunage Pharma, which is developing therapeutics to rejuvenate the immune system. First of all, why is immunaging so important from a clinical standpoint? I'm not an immunologist, but I play one on TV. And I have seen a lot of companies in the long bio space over the last several years. And it struck me one day as kind of amazing that no one is trying to do a systematic drug discovery effort to identify molecules that rejuvenate immune function. We know there are some molecules that do it. Rapamycin is one well-known example. Rapamycin, the golden molecule that seems to benefit everything. But, you know, and there are other molecules that, that do it, but no one systematically searched for them. And so in Immune Age, we are a platform company with two platforms. The first is a technology that allows expansion of hematopoietic stem cells by a factor of 1,000 while maintaining stemness. Previous efforts were 10 to 20x before stemness was lost in these HSCs in ex vivo expansion. And that can allow us to dramatically improve the bone marrow transplant field. But in addition to it, that it allows us to get our hands on a very large number of aged human HSCs. And that allows us to do drug screening. And so now we can screen the hallmarks of aging in HSCs and in T cells or whatever other cell types you want to find single molecules, uh, small molecules, peptides, proteins, uh, mRNAs, whatever, and the combinations thereof. And those can be combined ex vivo to rejuvenate the HSCs and expand them and then reinfuse them into the bone marrow. The amazing thing about HSCs is they know where to go. They home back into the bone marrow when you infuse them into the bloodstream. And this has been done for you know nearly a century now. One of the unique things about HSCs, which give rise to the whole immune system, the hematopoietic stem cells, is unlike most other stem cell types, they actually stick around in the body when it's fused in. So there are a lot of clinical trials with mesenchymal stem cells and various other autologous stem cells, and they stick around for a little while and they secrete some beneficial molecules, their secretome, but then they apoptose. But HSCs don't do that. HSCs really stick around for a very long time. And so we have brought on some of the world leaders in immune system aging to this company. And together we have over 100 years combined drug discovery expertise. And we've already found a couple of interesting molecules that we're doing MedChem on now to improve their properties and identify the molecular target. And so you know, we're hopeful that we'll find a whole pipeline of assets that rejuvenate the immune system. So it sounds like you, you have some promising leads. What's the development plan for the, uh, the molecules you have right now? You said you were doing MedChem to improve some properties. Uh, what else is going on? We've surveyed the literature for all of the published approaches that rejuvenate the immune system at the level of HSCs, T cells, and also the thymus. We're interested in regenerating the thymus. And so we are setting off to one by one benchmark these approaches in our own lab uh, and confirm which are the most promising. We have a lead program, IA101, which will be an analog of this molecule, will be 
coming out of Nature Aging sometime this year. And it rejuvenates immune function better than anything that my team of immunologists have ever seen. And it's actually very well tolerated. It's a natural product that's found in a certain fruit. So, you know, we've started testing some analogs of this compound to improve its properties, increase the binding affinity, and pull out the target, target or targets. And so, you know, with some sorrow therapeutics, for example, this was the first company that I launched in Oxford, UK. And Samsara has built up an in-house target ID capability. So chemoproteomics and mass spec-based methods, as well as protein arrays and CRISPR screening, et cetera, et cetera. So they have a pretty sophisticated pipeline for target ID because they're doing very large-scale phenotypic screening for autophagy enhancers. So we may partner with them and do some of it uh, with CROs and other collaborators to find these targets because the history of medicine or drug discovery has shown that phenotypic screening punches far above its weight in terms of drug discovery, including identifying new druggable targets. But what's held it back until very recently has been target ID. So fishing out the targets and mechanism of action after the fact. But you know, honestly, most drugs for which prior to say the 2000s, when there was some story about what their target and mechanism is, turns out with modern techniques, that story is usually not accurate. So, you know, in oncology drugs, there's usually some fairy tale put forth about, you know, this is the target, this is how the molecule works. But now we go back and revise that understanding to find that, well, there are multiple targets or that wasn't the true mechanism. So we're actually going back and, and letting the chemistry discover new biology for us with this phenotypic screening. And a lot of that was inspired by some colleagues I had at the Salk Institute and the Scripps Research Institute who were blazing the path there with chemoproteomics. Once you've developed your molecules, what's the clinical plan for the rejuvenated HSCs that you can generate using these compounds? We have a bunch of indications that we could pursue. I mean, it's the same problem with any geroprotective pipeline in a pill. You're sort of spoiled for choice. We like multiple myeloma as well as myelosuppression in chemotherapy. But then long-term, we, we have this vision for the immune system reboot, and I'll get into that in a sec. But probably the lead indication that we'll go for with some of our ex vivo compounds uh, or cocktails is myelosuppression. So when a patient receives chemo, these are DNA-damaging agents, like alkylating agents, for example, that kill off rapidly proliferating cells like the HSCs. And what if we could set aside some of a patient's HSCs through a non-invasive isolation technique, rejuvenate them ex vivo, expand them ex vivo, and then between each chemo cycle, re-infuse and restore some of that clonal diversity in their bone marrow. And then once those cycles of chemo are done, normally these patients are left without a functioning immune system. I mean, it slowly recovers, but it takes a while and they've lost a huge amount of clonal diversity. So restoring that after chemo, I think could dramatically improve patient outcomes, but also the holy grail, which is preventing tumor relapse. And patients who receive chemo, they age at an accelerated rate. Chemo, it, it creates new senescent cells, it does DNA damage, and it ablates a lot of the immune system. So if we can dramatically improve outcomes for patients who receive chemo, that would be an absolute home run. It's a huge market, huge unmet need. And this is something that I would want for myself and my friends and family to be available. And uh, you know, in the animals, it, it works quite well. So yeah, that's, that's one of our sort of lead indications, but we have many others in mind. And one ultimate 
sort of another holy grail would be upper respiratory tract infections, which globally are the fourth leading cause of death. And nobody is really doing much about them. So we don't expect that all of the molecules we identify with our ex vivo approach, rejuvenating HSCs or T cells will be suitable for in vivo, say, oral dosing. But some of them will be. In fact, our lead program is. For some of them that are sufficiently safe and have good pharmacokinetics, we anticipate that you can take those orally. And so, for example, suppose that you're an elderly person, say, suppose someone's grandmother, and you're coming on to flu season, it's going to be a bad flu season. You start taking our compound, and it basically builds your resilience, reinforces the defenses of your immune system in anticipation of the cold and flu season, or anybody who has immune suppression for whatever reason. And so if we could prevent, you know, I think it's 20 or 30,000 deaths from flu every year on average, something like that. If we could prevent that, that would be a massive win as well. So yeah, it, it, all of these ideas seem pretty obvious, but to my great surprise, nobody's really working on this because the position of the immunology field for a long time was that, well, there isn't anything you can do to boost immune function, like in terms of diet, lifestyle, supplements, or even pharmaceuticals. But we know, obviously, that that's false in the context of immune oncology, right? The immune oncology revolution shows that if you just restore immune function to not even fully where it should be, but you just kind of rev it up in an autoimmune-like function, it works really well against cancer. So clearly that's true, that you can restore immune function. And furthermore, you know, the same sort of weird dogma applied to the Alzheimer's space. It was only in the last few years that clinicians in the Alzheimer's space are basically agreeing that you can do a lot in terms of diet, lifestyle, and maybe drugs, interventions, or supplements that prevent the onset of Alzheimer's disease. I mean, it seems obvious, right? But that was amazingly the consensus view. So I think that's part of the reason why immune rejuvenation has not really been a hot area of drug discovery yet. And the other reason is that people just couldn't get their hands on enough HSCs to do large, high-throughput drug screening. It seems like that part of your platform, the ability to amplify HSCs, even independent of rejuvenation, it seems like it has some major ramifications for bone marrow transplantation. Am I right about that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the primary factors that determines the success of BMT is the number and quality of HSCs that you can transfuse. And so, you know, it's kind of hard to find a donor who's immunologically matched, uh, usually in families, but sometimes you have to really search far and wide. And a lot of the time that donor may not be in great health and they may be old. If they're older than you, that's really not ideal. And sometimes you can do an autologous bone marrow transplant with your own HSCs. But a lot of those patients are already old and already sick, uh, like multiple myeloma, and it just wouldn't be advisable for them. So they're, they're not eligible currently. But if you could take a small number of their HSCs, some of which that are already circulating the peripheral blood, for example, or mobilizing the peripheral blood, which is routinely done today, now you can get a huge supply of them and you can gently reinfuse them. And you know, I alluded to this earlier, this concept we have, which is the immune system reboot, where basically we envision a day where you know everybody, say over the age of 40 or so, will come in every several years and they will get some of their HSCs mobilized in the peripheral blood, expanded, rejuvenated, and then reinfused in a non-myeloablative fashion. Because currently you have to ablate the existing bone marrow to replace it with new bone marrow from a different donor. But if you have enough HSCs, it's just by sheer force of numbers, they will displace the existing HSCs in the bone marrow niche. This is called a non-myeloablative bone marrow transplant. And there have been some papers, including in the journal Rejuvenation Research, about this 
happy to direct people to that about the potential. And one of the things that I probably should have mentioned this earlier, one of the things that really clued me into the importance of the bone marrow uh, in the immune system and aging, and when I care to look, I find such a wealth of evidence for this, were that several groups had shown over the last couple of years that if you do a young to old heterochronic bone marrow transplant, you take young HSCs, put them into an old mouse, that mouse lives between 12 and 30% longer, which is a pretty large effect size. And those are not optimized protocols. Other groups have found improved cognitive function, physical function, resistance to infection, so on and so forth. Is that a non-myoblative uh, protocol as well? Yeah, correct. Okay. And so, you know, there's this principle or this, this Greek myth called the ship of Theseus, where if you slowly replace some of the wood in the ship over time, at what point do you declare that you have a new ship? Is it 50%? Is it 90%? When is it a new ship? And so we want to do just the same with the immune system. We want to gently, slowly replace the existing HSCs in the niche. This has been shown in animals to be possible. And we have come up with a clinical development strategy that allows our approach, a sort of picks and shovels reagent-based approach, this cocktail of molecules that you can apply ex vivo, that approach we think will slot in neatly. It will fit neatly into the existing clinical protocols. So for example, transplant centers already doing BMTs routinely can just include our reagent cocktail to rejuvenate the cells and our expansion protocol. And then we can partner with companies like those doing T-cell therapy, because I have heard from uh, Carl June, who's one of the originators of the T-cell therapy space some years ago, that 25% of patients who would be eligible for T-cell therapy cannot receive it because their T-cells do not expand ex vivo. They go senescent. And even if you do get a sufficient level of expansion, those T-cells ex vivo, when you put them back in the patient, they don't work as hard or as aggressively target the tumors. And this applies beyond just oncology, but also to infectious disease. So so that struck me as a major unmet need as well. And so we, we already know molecules in the literature and in our own hands that rejuvenate T-cell function ex vivo. And so, you know, this is the kind of thing where we can partner early with a lot of different companies active in the space. And then the long-term vision, as you said, is to provide a immune reboot, even to people who do not present with an illness, that this is something that would be in general use in your vision just to kind of help people avoid all manner of different late-life immune-related maladies, but not to specifically treat a disease. Am I understanding the long-term vision correctly? Yeah, correct. And this vision should apply to all GERA protectors, right? I mean, they should be safe enough to give prophylactically to reduce multimorbidity reduction, as my former co-founder James Pyre coined the term, although I coined the term disco, so he can attribute that to me. <laughs> and there are people doing stem cell therapies all over the world. There are some approved in the United States, some approved in Europe, but many people are going further afield to get therapies, stem cell therapies elsewhere, like a lot of athletes and people with diseases for which a large-scale clinical trial has not been conducted with these stem cell therapies. And I would say, you know, probably the majority of these clinics offering quote-unquote stem cell therapies are not scientifically rigorous. They don't have data, but a handful of them are legit. And I personally know people who have received incredible benefit from these therapies for serious conditions. It's just that big pharma has not invested heavily in the stem cell therapy space because it's not as easily monopolizable through the current patent system. 
And so these large-scale clinical trials have not been run, but there are a number of them, and there are a lot of mesenchymal stem cell trials occurring now. So long-term, yes, we would like to offer this kind of immune reboot to everybody. And you know, I'm primarily, don't tell my investors this, but I'm primarily not in this for the money at this point. I am in this for extending the healthy lifespan of myself and my loved ones in the world and kind of showing big pharma that there is a new way. Another world is possible. We don't need to just do symptom palliation and pick the low-hanging fruit and charge patients an exorbitant amount for these drugs that don't work very well. We can actually treat disease at the root cause, the fundamental biology of aging. So showing that that's possible, I think, is very attractive. Amen to that. As we close our conversation, I want to open the floor and invite you to speak pretty broadly about something I've been wanting to pick your brain about, which is you've talked to a lot of people about the promise of longevity biotech, and you talk about aging and you talk about rejuvenation. You've thought deeply about it. And I, I'm just wondering, what are one or a few of the key misunderstandings that you encounter about our field out when you're talking among non-specialists, general investors, and the like? Sure. There are so many. I don't know where to begin. And I'm planning to draft sort of a Q&A FAQ with Nathan Chang and Adam Grease and Andrew Sandberg, a professor at Oxford soon, addressing some of these sort of moral philosophical arguments against extending healthy lifespan for all, which seems like prima facie on its face, obviously desirable, but fair enough. So probably the most common one, which is easily dispelled, is what I call the curse of Tiffanus. So this is another Greek myth where basically there was this Greek character who uh, was granted immortality, but he forgot to ask for eternal youth. So he shriveled up into a cricket with great suffering. And that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to keep people alive, but on life support and unwell. We want to in increase quality-adjusted life years, qualities. And so this is the goal of the National Institute on Aging, which is compressional morbidity. We want to compress the time in which we're spending years in poor health at the end of life, which is very expensive for the whole world and the whole system. And what we see in the animals is that we actually just have a longer period of healthy life, and then they pass away a little bit more sharply when they hit some sort of a wall. So that's the goal, just to be healthier for longer, and everyone agrees with that. There's another misconception or, or something I, I want to address in the investor space, which is, and I'm speaking to the billionaires out there, no matter how rich you get, no number of Lambos will slow the pace of aging. <laughs> Even the perfect diet and lifestyle will slow the pace of aging by maybe about 30%, right? Whatever we figure out the perfect diet and lifestyle is, and assuming we can actually ascribe to it, we need radical engineering approaches to rejuvenation to move the needle. Most diseases today, which kill us, are driven by aging, which we know is malleable pharmacologically and genetically. And biological immortality is already possible at the level of cells. So the reproductive germline cells, the sperm and egg stem cells, they're already immortal and have been for billions of years of evolution. So recent advances in technologies like the Nobel Prize winning Yamanaka reprogramming can restore aged adult cells to day zero embryonic stem cells and erase the cellular aging mark. So it's biologically possible to reverse aging cells today. And humans are simply agglomerations of cells. So therefore, organismal immortality is physically possible. It's just an engineering challenge at this point. But long bio is still heavily underfunded and underpopulated with talent, given the revolutionary impact on medicine and the human condition, creating a world free of age-related disease. Every scientist working on cancer, heart disease, dementia, et cetera, they're attacking the heads of the mythological hydra, 
lot of Greek mythology in this <laughs> cult today, <laughs> which are just downstream ep epiphenomena of the process of aging itself. So I think we're on the precipice of a medical revolution comparable in magnitude to the dawn of antibiotics at the turn of the 20th century. Most people died young from infectious diseases, but by the 1950s, almost nobody with access to modern medicine died from infectious disease or at least bacterial infection. And such a revolution in the year 1900 was thought impossible, unthinkable. Similarly, bringing aging under medical control seems to many outside of the field overly optimistic. And so since we're all marching toward the grave, I want to call for a Manhattan Project in longevity. So by the end of the century, I think human healthy lifespan will be multiplied, if not infinite, if we're successful. And the pace of progress is exponential, but it's not nearly fast enough. So you listening can make a difference by helping us to mobilize a political movement that galvanizes capital and talent into the field, the equivalent of a medical Manhattan Project. You know, winning the race to split the atom, turn the tide in World War II, it was an existential threat to the Axis or Allied powers. But now all of us, everybody on Earth, faces a guaranteed existential threat, a 100% probability that we will suffer and die from at least one age-related disease if something else doesn't get us first. It's one of the few certainties in life presently, suffering and death from aging. And it would be rational to allocate the maximum amount of capital at your disposal to combat the aging process of biological aging. So this is what I'm doing, serving as a conduit to get as much capital into the hands of the smartest people in the lung biofield. And so, you know, if I were a multi-billionaire, I would put 99% of my money into longevity because at the present pace, you're not going to live long enough to enjoy and extend your life long enough to enjoy those gains. And so, and furthermore, people don't really respond to data or cogent arguments for the most part. Most people respond to memes and political movements and what everybody else is talking about. It's the mimetic nature, the sort of Rene Girard approach to um, culture and the zeitgeist. So we really need to make this a meme and a political movement that people talk about. I actually welcome more billionaires getting into this space. So anyway, hopefully that will encourage some people to to help us get the word out. Well said, and I hope that your message is heard by the right people to make this happen. Sebastian Brunemeyer, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And if I could just give a couple other quick shout outs, I would recommend subscribing to Nathan's newsletter, Longevity Market Cap newsletter, and also get involved in the D side, the decentralized science movement uh, with VitaDAO, which I helped to organize which is sort of a decentralized longevity biotech accelerator, investing in academic research projects in universities, as well as collaborations with biotech companies. And we've been backed by and supported by prominent names, Bob Nelson from Arch Ventures, Vitalik from Ethereum, Bology from Coinbase, et cetera, et cetera. So we would really love people to get involved in that community and you can earn tokens for your contribution on technical diligences and sourcing assets and so on. And yeah, feel free to get in touch with me via LinkedIn, and I'd be happy to plug you into the ecosystem. We'll make sure that we put links to those assets in the show notes for this episode. Thank you very much for those recommendations, and thanks once again for a fantastic conversation. Likewise. Thanks, Chris, and thanks, Kristen, for the invitation. And yeah, we'll be investing in BioAge in the next round. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.